0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Design Development brought to you by h Structural Engineering. This is your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design, and construction. I'm your host, Renz Hayes, co-founder of h lifelong learner, and I'm obsessed with high-powered organizations and the leaders that guide them. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, I can't thank you enough. Let's go. My pleasure to introduce today's guest, Rob Harbison. He's the co-founder and managing partner and principal at Market Square Architects. He and his partner, Adam Wagner, launched in 2016 and they have shown tremendous growth as a team of nearly 50 people. They've expanded from Portsmouth to two other office locations. They've grown through acquisition. So it's quite the journey to unpack. Rob's a tremendous leader, a great person, and we even get into the housing crisis of today's world and what Rob thinks is the key to solving that housing crisis. And Rob has a big call to action in today's conversation. If you know anyone in architecture looking to grow their career, this is a must listen to episode. And for developers everywhere, Rob has some great insights. Please tune in, share it with somebody that you know needs to listen to it. And without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Rob. Please join me in welcoming Rob Harbison. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get to know you and your story a little bit better. We've been working together for years, but I don't know that we've done the deep dive into your career journey and the making of Market Square Architects. So, I like to introduce the the guests or allow them to introduce themselves and their company a little bit, so the audience can get to know you. Sure.
1: Yeah. So I'm Rob Harbison. I'm one of the founding principals of Market Square Architects. My partner Adam Wagner. Gosh, I think we've been doing this for seven years now. So, but I've been working in New Hampshire in the greater Portsmouth area for the last 21 years. I've been working in architecture and or engineering for last, gosh, about almost
0: 25, 26 now. So been at it a while. And or engineering. So architecture and or engineering. Let's dive right into what's the engineering back.
1: (laughs) We'll just dive in, I guess, then. So I should say, so my dad was an engineer. He's he's the he was the chief engineer for the state of Delaware for a long time. My first job was as a bridge inspector in in Delaware, but I knew I was going to go to architecture for grad school. And the path that I was choosing, there's different ways you can get an accredited degree that will lead to licensure. The path that I was choosing was to do something different as undergrad in part just to have that breadth. So I did civil engineering at the University of Delaware with a, and specialized in structures, did a bunch of research at the Center for Composite Materials, Worked as a bridge designer and a bridge inspector for DelDOT in the summers. And then I got to about junior year and I couldn't stand the 18 credits of nothing but engineering all the time. So I got a minor in art history. So I'm like probably the only person ever with that combo.
0: <laughs> Civil engineering and art history. It ended up being
1: great for Maryland. And it turns out that Delaware has one of the top art history programs in the country. So the references were really great from that too. But my whole whole rest of my family are engineers. Bridge engineer, uh, highway engineer. And then my dad keeps retiring, but he's still somehow teaching at the university and, and doing
0: consulting. So so I, I almost had to get that degree before I became a questioner. <laughs> Do you find that the engineering background influences how you think as an architect? Like, how yes, does it, Absolutely. Like, could you talk about like what that brings to the table?
1: So, one, I think when it comes to looking at projects at a twenty thousand foot scale, when you're talking about planning, it definitely the civil engineering background, which is so broad, definitely influences that. What I have found structurally is that, and we work with we work with engineers like your office where they're really creative. And they give us lots of choices because they understand we're trying to accomplish something, right? There are other engineers where they say, I've analyzed this. This is the simplest cost, most cost-effective thing. This is what the answer is, right? And what I have found is that my background, you know, I wouldn't pretend to be an engineer, although I did do really well in the EIT exam, but it tells me what questions to ask. Hey, what could we do this instead? Could we move this? So I think it's been very helpful in that regard, just kind of knowing, uh, it is. It has made me broader in terms of understanding some of those big picture questions.
0: That's a really good point. It's not necessarily that you have to know how to do everything in a profession. It's knowing what questions to ask. I think
1: that's 90% of what a successful architect is. And even the art history on the, on the design side, which that's really the sector that I oversee in our office kind of design component. You really have to have those references. I mean, it's all
0: about what ideas have you seen and how can you test them in a project? You mentioned working with a structural engineer that might be kind of siloed or one dimensional in the way they think. And how I reframe that is somebody comes to you with a a building problem or a development they want to create. And you're like, well, I have a steel solution for you. (laughs) It's like, well, it might not be steel. What if it could be wood or mass timber or concrete or masonry? There's a million options and. It's, I think, in our end of the business, our, our role is to make sure that we're at least exploring what the options are so that we make the best decision for each development.
1: Well, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm trained as an architect where we're all trained to know, you know, what the correct answer is. But And I think it's important to say that, you know, say what you think the correct
0: answer is, but also what are the choices? 100%. Yeah, you can't pass the buck, right? Like, here's the decision-making criteria. Make the decision. <laughs> I don't want accountability for that. So market square, you guys launched about seven years ago, and I would say you've had tremendous growth, very impressive growth from myself, who is a highly focused at watching organizations and leaders. So I applaud you. Could you share with the audience what your team size is? How many office locations? So we're hovering just below 50,
1: and it depends on whether it's the summer and we have interns or not. But we have about, I want to say, just over 30 here in Portsmouth, which was our first location and is kind of our headquarters. And then in Austin, we are around 10. And then in um, St. Louis, we just have five in there. They do about half their work in Nashville.
0: Very impressive growth. It is uh, no easy feat to build a professional service team of of nearly 50 in just seven years. So I, I applaud that. And we're going to dive into some of the leadership and perspective and, and how you got there. What market sectors do you serve? So we work
1: in just about every market sector. I would say we, we don't do a ton of public RFP process. We don't. We do sort of when we have When we have the right team for the right project and we have experience in that sector, we will periodically pursue those. But that's not necessarily a focal point, but just about every other market sector. So Adam, my business partner's background, is all in large-scale commercial, multifamily student housing. I think he's one of two architects in New Hampshire that's part of the American College of Healthcare Architects with AAA done a lot of medical. And then we kind of cross over at industrial and and a commercial office. And then we like to say that I've done everything else. My background has been very varied. So my first project that I started ever working on at school was the Pentagon renovation, which is the largest office building in the world. And then then I went to work for a boutique firm that did a lot of high-end design, single-family residential and commercial retail, hospitality stuff in DC, moved up to New Hampshire, worked at a firm that did similar kinds of things, and when I started out there, I was actually doing a lot on single family residential. We went through the housing bubble and a lot of their, you know, I would say the percentage of their work in doing residential dropped and their commercial picked up. So by the
0: time I left that office, I was actually head of the commercial studio. So that was a pivot around the 2008 recession you're talking about. Yeah,
1: and I think a lot of it just had to do with, I think, two things. One was... The percentage of work that we had in residential shifted during that time period, and the other part was because I had had a varied background. I was the one that had the experience to to on the commercial side of the code, where that office primarily before that had been doing focused more on high end residential, and you know commercial was more for downtown approval processes for people that had been residential clients. After the housing bubble, there was more work on the commercial side, and I was the one who had
0: done a lot of that before, just in terms of code review and the the different types of things that are involved in commercial projects. Was there any pivot any strategy that you particularly took to kind of lead into the commercial realm? Did that work just kind of find you as a known architect in Portsmouth or were you outbound doing business development, seeking out these opportunities?
1: I think I think what I found is when I came to the, to the office I was working at in Portsmouth, I was just hungry. I mean, I think I was, you know, I was a young architect and I wanted any responsibility that anybody took. And When I found at that office, I was not given a lot of access early on there to the design side. That was kept pretty tight within a couple of people. It was not really, it's sort of a studio environment. And as a result, I was like, sure, I'll, I'll take on the stuff that nobody else wants to do. So I got really good at doing weird code reviews for downtown Portsmouth buildings that don't fit any kind of anything. I got really good at doing commercial wall sections. I took on whatever responsibility people wanted. And so one of the things that I did was I sought every opportunity I could to go out and learn how to do networking and got continuing education. Any of those opportunities that were available, I was hungry and I went and and did them. So I sort of learned how to do networking. And I think that led to a lot of, I'm going to say local regional, you know, within an hour or so of Portsmouth connections on the commercial side, especially when it comes to fit-ups. And I think over time, when Adam joined the office and he came in, I had been there for 10 years when he came in and then we overlapped there for three years. And he was brought in as the director of operations because he has a background in uh, business. He's got an MBA to go along with architecture. So, so I have engineering, he's got, he's got an MBA. <laughs> you know, it's, it, does, it does make us pretty broad. And, and I think when he came in, he and I together in discussions with our dealer uh, of that company, we made a more concerted effort to grow the commercial side. Part of that was based on his background. And then we really did kind of target people we wanted to have conversations with.
0: Really good lesson in in your strategy to overcome what maybe f- felt like you were in a siloed position, right? Pigeonholed, as they say, because there's nothing wrong with it, but there can be firms that grow where there's a select few or a select group of people that are responsible for all the high level design thinking. And then once that... That vision is kind of cast. That conceptual design, they can get other architects to come in and start executing. Let's say the construction documents for them, but that can limit growth for somebody that's just building documents and not getting exposed to the theory and, and how to work through a conceptual design process. And rather than stay pigeonholed, you seeked out the opportunity to continue growing and find your own lever. To create your own luck and so to speak i think that's a tremendous takeaway for anyone that is feeling pigeonholed like don't feel like there's one path to success you don't have to follow their exact path like seek out an alternate route and make it happen
1: well yeah and i think you know i think a lot of especially younger architects come out of school with the idea that they're going to design all day they're going to sit at a desk and draw things and that's very little of what it is and then depending on what office you go to a lot of that a lot of that work is tightly controlled and I think every office has a structure that works for them, and so I wouldn't necessarily that say that's the wrong way to do it. That structure doesn't work for me. For me, it's all about a studio environment, testing ideas. But I would also say that you know our our field is tremendously is always busy, and and the projects always have timeframes. For any young professional in any field, I would tell this is what I tell my kids. I'm like. If you want an opportunity, don't ask, don't wait to be given it, go take it. I mean, you can ask, there's nothing wrong with that, but go take it. Finish your stuff, get it done well and on time, and then ask for the thing you want. Or just go take it on and say, hey, I did a pass at this in my free time, whatever. But, you know, I think the opportunities are there. I think that's part of how you value staff is to give them opportunities. But at the same time, you know, there's always opportunities. I mean, we we, we support continuing education and there are people in our office that take advantage of that, people that don't. You know, we'll pay for people to go do business networking with our business development guy and and people take advantage of that and don't. So, I mean, I think you can grow as much as you want, but you have to be hungry and, and go take it. Well
0: said. I a post a, a post I created today for LinkedIn. The theme is if you're not looking for opportunity, you'll never see it. Right. It's like the law of attraction what you focus on, you attract. So, if you're not seeking opportunity, you're never going to find it. You got you to gotta get out there and look for it. Really good advice. Let's talk about the need for housing. What are the roadblocks we face like why do we have such a a housing crisis
1: Part of the reason I ended up at University of Maryland for grad school is because they have such a focus on urban design they actually host the the office for the Congress of New Urbanism so I have spent a lot of time on the planning side and our office periodically we do we do have a planning sector we do master planning whether it's for commercial retail developments or for campuses but we have also, I have personally, professionally been involved with a number of regional housing organizations. And because of that, and because just because I go to so many approval meetings, I spend a lot of time talking to city staff. We have partnered with Resilience Planning on a couple of occasions to write zoning and or downtown design guidelines for a couple of these. And across the country, in any sort of desirable to walkable downtown, there's a tremendous need for housing. You know, during our, our Austin office, Austin right now has, I think, around 150 people moving there every day. And that has been true since before oh, wow. COVID. And during COVID, not a lot came to market, but there's a lot of need. Up here in the Northeast, Northern Boston, we've been talking about that forever. We've been talking about housing in downtown Portsmouth and the need for housing in, you know, since for 20 years. And it's really actually, what's amazing is, despite all of the development of Portsmouth, it's only been in the last three, four years that we've actually increased the number of housing units, which means that with all the new development, at the same time, we've been decreasing density. And part of that is because of the cost per square foot and who has the money to buy that space.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult.
1: One of the things that I learned in in grad school from a professor who, who used to work for the office of for the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation is basically the way that you get what you want is you remove all of the barriers. So you take your zoning book, and you delete almost everything for the thing that you... And a lot of towns now have character-based zoning, but they still have things like historic districts. If you have character-based zoning, you don't need an historic district. Explain character-based zoning. Yep. Yeah. So character-based zoning, the idea behind it is that you don't necessarily care as much about, I'm going to say, the, the legislation or the written rules about how to design. What you care about is that something fits the height, mass, materiality, of the other things that are in that streetscape.
0: What about use?
1: Not as much. I mean, use is more going to be done by, you know, what area of town you're in and what's allowed, but it basically says, Hey, if you're on a street that has a bunch of three story buildings with front porches that are a half floor up from the street, your building should be something like that. So it's much more about those generic guidelines than any particular style or any specific rule. And the idea behind it is that it makes it way easier to design, but just by comparison. So we helped to write the design guidelines in Dover along with the Resilience Plan. In Dover, New Hampshire, um, there are five districts. The design guidelines for that downtown are 10 pages long, front and back each side for each district. And it's very, these are the materials you can use. This is how you can use them. This is the allowable height of your building. This is the setback. These are the types of features we want to see. Pretty easy shopping list for any design professional.
0: Yeah, that makes it quick to digest and make decisions. In Portsmouth,
1: they also have character-based zoning. Theirs is 137 pages long. Almost because of the way that it's written to such a fine degree of detail, almost every single lot becomes a unique lot, and you have to go through an approval process and get permission. And so the process here ends up taking eight months, where in Dover, it takes two.
0: Essentially because it's so detailed, any new proposed development is needs a variance or a special approval to because it doesn't abide by those rules. exactly and it never it never fits exactly what they
1: want and sometimes even if you follow the letter of what's allowed it doesn't make sense for the lot and so then you have to go through a, pro- a process anyway the answer to to you know if you don't want something to get built write a whole bunch of sentences and rules about it and that time frame and cost will keep it from getting built and part of it is just who can even enter as a developer if you want a local regional developer, you're talking about a lot of upfront up at-risk costs before you have an approval. If you want a particular use to get built, remove all the barriers. You know, an example I would give is back in the 80s when you know there was all kinds of crime in Central Park and New York City was trying to clean that up, they realized that what they really needed downtown was pedestrians. Pedestrians are the answer to a lot of problems in downtowns, whether it's first floor retail or whether it's um, reduce, reducing crime, it's really pedestrians. So what they did is they said, hey... Developers, if you um, do fifty percent of your building residential, we'll give you an extra ten stories. Guess what? Magically happened. (laughs) Hey, developers, if you if you do forty percent of your ground space as a public plaza, we'll give you an extra eight stories and we'll waive a planning board process. Guess what? Magically happened. Right. The answer is always remove all barriers. So another example I would give is we were working with resilience planning with the town of Rochester for zoning. And what they really want more than anything else in Rochester, New Hampshire, is to activate their first floor commercial space. They have this beautiful historic downtown and they have all these vacant windows on the first floor. And we told them after we went through several rounds of study with the town and the community and talking to the planning department, certain stakeholders, what we told them to do was get rid of their requirement for first floor commercial space. And at first that made no sense to them at all, because that's the only thing that they wanted out of this whole process. (laughs) And and eventually we, we we got buy-in from the town staff and the talent staff couldn't get it approved by the select board. And so finally, after three or four rounds of that, they came to our office here and we had a meeting <coughs> and I told them the way to describe it to their select board. I said, look, twice a month we meet with you guys. And I drive to Rochester at eight in the morning for an 830 meeting. And I check my email for 15 minutes. And then all I want to do in the world is go get a cup of coffee. And I can't. I have to get in my car, drive back out to the highway intersection to Dunkin' Donuts and get a cup of coffee and come back. So if you get rid of all of your first floor requirements, which you're just requiring developers to build a floor of vacant space, and you allow people to do completely residential buildings, which by the way, every major city in the world has, the second you have enough pedestrians that a Dunkin' Donuts naturally forms in your downtown, then you can put your first floor requirements back in place. And that's part of what people don't understand too, you know, zoning is that. a 100-year process. It's not overnight. And also,
0: you can change it
1: <laughs> anytime you want.
0: It needs to be changed, yeah.
1: So they removed all their first floor requirements, and now they have, I think, three new residential developments in their downtown. And you're already seeing some of those first floor vacant res- retail spaces start to fill in. And, and again, as soon as they do, great. Put your requirements back in place for 50% of the first floor to be retail.
0: Pedestrians boost the local economy, right? Because it's
1: all about die. pedestrians. And, and, you know, and the other part is, you know, so a lot of the people that come out to the public meetings, and by the way, 80% of which are not, you know, against whatever's being built, everybody says they want housing and then they go out to fight every project that has housing. The, you know, what I would say is a lot of those folks tend to be concerned with things like property taxes, which don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, there, first of all, multifamily housing, you're not adding any kids to schools, not school age kids. And by the time you have two school aged kids in a two bedroom apartment, you're moving to a single family house anyway. But but 80% of job growth is created by essentially small businesses, either startups or small, you know, those aren't coming from our fifty-five and up communities that we keep approving And will your taxes go up over time? And will you over time add kids to your school districts? Sure. But all of those people will be tax paying residents of single family houses. And the other thing is I don't care because now your property's worth twice twice as much. But what people will say is, well, I'm concerned about rental costs and old, you know, old folks having to move out of their places. And it's sort of, well, housing is also for them, so you can sell your single family house and move to a two bedroom if you're retirement age. But also, if you want to control rents, the best thing to do is get as much square footage online as possible, and that's again increasing density. So the answer, the answer to solving those problems for housing cost and availability is always density. And we say no to that all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's counterproductive because you're absolutely right. It's a supply and demand. I I often think of it, it's, it's traffic, right? Uh, one car slams on their brakes and now the rate of cars coming into that car that slowed down is faster than they're driving. So it eventually yields one car has to stop. And now the rate of cars coming into the stop car is greater than the rate at which they're pulling away. And now you have a traffic jam. Right.
1: And instead, in towns like Portsmouth, like we're taking away available building You know, and it's like, how are we solving the housing problem at all, even addressing it? So I think as a profession, I mean, I think the two things I would say is one, I think we all need to talk to planning departments more about how to, it's not just about having predictable rules. It's about removing the barriers to the thing that they want to achieve. It's about making that process simpler and less costly. And part of that is less time. And the other part of it is, you know, I go to all kinds of advocacy, education things and basically try to explain to people the fallacy of that entire you know, tax thought process conversation because everything they think is wrong.
0: This relates to leadership to me. This is the same thing as running a business or leading a team. It's more about removing obstacles rather than finding some new novel thing that's going to separate you. Like it, it's do the simple things really well and mo- remove the obstacles to move forward. Yep. Completely agree. I see something, this this whole story of creating more housing and, and solving the housing crisis. You mentioned, hey, we want 50% more housing and we'll give you 10 more stories. I'd love to see that sort of legislation, and hopefully that's the right word, for sustainability as well. Like sustainability does cost extra money right now. And in our in a time where it's already economically challenging to create a development, the way you solve that by in cre- permitting larger buildings to offset the land basis in the short term to then make it more standard.
1: Hey, we want solar on your roof. No problem. Can you give me an extra floor? Great, just paid for it. Hooray. Everybody's happy. Right. Instead, we instead it's like we'll write 30 pages in the zoning book about the requirements for solar ready construction or whatever instead, right? And it's that just keeps you from getting it.
0: I want to learn more about what makes Rob a Rob before we go further into the story of Market Square, What was your first job as a as a kid? So it's funny. That's one of the things
1: that I actually ask everybody we hire. What was your first job? Is that right? That's an interview. We've got some, great, we've got some great stories. And so my first job, I didn't really have a job in high school other than I started sort of my own kind of landscaping odd job. So it started off just by like one, right? And then I went from like junior high to high school and that became things like build this patio for somebody or, you know, whatever, trim trees or, I, you know, and you were hungry
0: back then. By the time
1: I got, well, what was great about it is, you know, I could set my own hours and whenever I had enough money, I could just like take, go to the Phillies game at the beach for a day or like whatever. And so by the time we got through high school, I had, you know, multiple people helping me on that. So, you know, so we, yeah, it was great. It was, it was enough cash and yeah, you had to work hard and it was hot, but like you're, you know, for a high
0: school, Kid, it was a great job, and and you had total flexibility, which is awesome. If you have any cash as a high schooler, you're you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And did I hear that correctly? You had friends working with you on a well, job. I mean, you can't do a patio job by yourself. You know, you gotta you gotta enlist other people. But if they know they
1: if they know they're sharing the cash, they don't. You know, if you found friends that didn't have their own job, it was like easy. You just get cash and you go on to the next thing. So and then once I went to college, I you know I, for for the time period that I was in undergrad, I always had a job in engineering. So one year it was, I think, in the um, bridge design department at Dot. A couple years I did bridge inspection, which was a fantastic outside summer job. <laughs> and then and taught me a lot about, by the way, just construction, especially on existing construction. You know, I learned a lot about spalled concrete, those kinds of things. And then one year I did entirely research with the Sagra Kabbaz materials University of Delaware on bridge design. So there's, there's two culverts in Harrington, Delaware. So if you're ever going down there, I'll tell you what roads not to drive on.
0: Don't go down there. That's great. And so engineering, you you head into architecture. Uh, A big conversation I I see on LinkedIn throughout the industry, we talk about it on this podcast, is education and sometimes the need for reform. And I think it's a double-edged sword. But if we were to reflect on your architecture education, what did you think they did exceptionally well? So I think part of it is where you choose to go. And for undergrad... It maybe
1: matters a little less. I think in undergrad you want a really good foundation. Delaware does happen to have a good engineering school, and part of that is I was a kid who knew where I was headed, so I knew the kind of experiences that I that I wanted. I don't know that everybody does at that age, but I think you want a really good foundation. You want a school that's going to prepare you, and if you have an area of focus, great. Try to find a school that's good at that. Right. In architecture, it's a much wider range. And I remember looking at grad schools and, you know, I went to some grad schools that were hyper-focused on the technical side of architecture, but they were, you know, really weak in terms of design theory and design side, which, you know, school is the time to test that, right? I went to other schools where they were like, you should just buy a fountain and write about things that you think over the summer. And, you know, you would walk through the different spaces in those two schools and the first one, you would see these like giant wall section models that had ducts and I-beams and things in them. And the second one, you wouldn't even know that it was architecture. It was sculpture, sure. right? So Maryland, part of the reason I picked that school is one, it was in an urban environment. It's integrated into DC. And if you're in architecture, a lot of the experience that you're going to get is just looking at architecture. It had a focus in urban planning, which was of interest to me. It had a reputation at being a very technically oriented school. Other architecture schools would refer to it derogatorily as a place that you went if you wanted a job. And I still don't understand how that was a negative, (laughs) but in the mindset of of designers, it was. And so what was interesting is that the previous accreditation of Maryland prior to my going there was that they needed to be stronger on the design theory side. And so I went there in an interesting time period because I would say that I got a really balanced education in those two things and part of that is because they were making an effort to to improve exactly that. So I went through, I think, at a very, very good time. But I, I thought it was a very balanced education, which I think was really valuable to me. And I still think architecture schools in general should probably lean toward the side of design theory exploration more because that's an environment where you can really test it. And as a young design professional, no matter what office you go to, you're going to have limited access to that, I think, in the short term, unless you do competitions or, or things on your own. And I would tell everybody, like in that time frame, you
0: should go out and sketch things all over the place and grab ideas that way. You're, you're learning at that point. So it might not be productive or earning a dollar, but it's building the skill so that you can earn with it later on. Right, well, and even if you're sketching other people's stuff, it's still
1: training your hand and your mind to think about things like proportionate height and area. So when you do get those opportunities, you can succeed. But yeah, I think Marilyn, Marilyn was very practical in, in that, you know I felt like I got a very balanced education where architecture was more than just design there, you were also solving the problem and
0: making a building that was functional. Quick break from the show. Thanks for tuning in to Design Development. We're trying to help as many people as possible. So if you could subscribe and leave a review on today's episode on whatever platform you're listening, it would be a great help. It's the only way we're going to reach more people. Let's get back to the show. For entry level students, it seems like getting exposed to design and uh, is it theory? Is that the is that the right word? Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. And do you look at that as more is that master planning? Is that the design and flow of a building, the facade, the scale of a building, of rooms? Like what does that entail from your perspective? It's all of those things.
1: I think it's each one of those things is a different scale, right? Like when you're doing master planning, you're thinking a lot about those things, but at a much larger scale. And then when you're looking at an individual building, it's the same exercise, but at a much smaller scale. Um, depending on where you just go to school, I think there's a lot of schools that are plan focused. Uh, I think that's a mistake too. I mean, I do a lot of designing in, uh, and, and that's where you get you get a lot of really elegant floor plans and facades that have all you know single story pancake spaces across the entire floor. And that's always the right thing to do. You know, sometimes you want a one and a half story space or a two story space and there are reasons for that. So I usually start with section perspective. I'll work my way back to um, elevations. And I think at the same time, you're always kind of doing that um, space planning exercise, whether it's diagrammatic or just to think
0: about function and flow. So to me, it's all iterative. You've got to do all three of those things at once. Were these the type of things you got exposed to in your first job or are these things that you had to like really seek out to gain that muscle and, and to learn that perspective?
1: I think so. When I was in grad school, I also had jobs either while I was in school or in between semesters and that kind of thing. So, my first one was at the Pentagon Renovation Program, which was for Daniel Johnson or DMJM. So, I don't remember all the names at this point, but, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <That's> <laughs> but it's uh, probably good for their branding.
1: Well, at the time, it was the largest architecture firm in the world. And, and since I think they've been bought out and carved up and repositioned, but, but that one I had a spectacular project manager who was in charge of the Pentagon sector. And he gave me a a really varied experience and that was really valuable. But I could look around the office and see that that wasn't true with every project manager. I think there was a lot in that office that was about efficiency. And you talked about pigeonholing earlier. And there was definitely a separation between the design people, the engineers, the architects, what project sector you were on. It was very highly structured. So then I went to work for a smaller design firm. Uh, A couple of the uh, folks there were involved with the University of Maryland at a faculty level. And they did both commercial and residential architecture, but it was much more design focused. And there, no matter which type of project you were working on, you were kind of involved start to finish and there was a lot of focus on design. And so that was actually great training and exposure. You really learned how to do a project start to finish. And so when when I came up to New Hampshire... I didn't really find, I was looking for an office like that. I didn't really find one. I think maybe Market Square Architects is that now. (laughs) But up here, it was much more segregated as well, sort of design, practical. And I was given opportunities in the practical, mostly because I had that varied experience and I had carried projects to the. And so it was like, okay, great. Then I'm going to learn everything I can about that time period of stuff. And then I can, you know, if I completed my work, I could take a pass at the design of something and give it to my project manager because I knew they didn't have time. You know, I could go sketch things outside because I didn't have kids then. You know, I had time for that. So I was able to to get what I wanted on the design side, but I sort of had to make my own time for it and
0: take it. The lesson there is for, for the young professional or any professional for that matter, it's it's be effective, effective and efficient, right? Effective get your get your shit done so that you can use time, you can create time to work on the next skill, the next project to work towards the job that you want. But you got to do, you got to nail your current job extremely well. And that's like, for me, I put in a lot of extra time, particularly in my 20s, because I was always trying to learn the next skill and earn the next position. It's not, growth in your career is never you get like anointed to get elevated to this next career jump this promotion and then you start becoming that person you start becoming that person to earn the promotion and it's a and it's a huge mindset shift
1: yeah i had there's a local professional who is who has passed away but he you know he's maybe 10 15 years ahead of me in this process and he used to always say you know, your your the level of success you have as an architect depends a lot more on on your time after forty hours than it does the first and I think it's true. Like you've you've gotta finish your work on time and efficiently, but then if you want the opportunities, if you want to grow professionally, you have to seek them out. And generally that means it's beyond that time.
0: Caveat that with with one clarification. Cause I, I do see in our industries, architecture and engineering, there can be where 50, 60 hours of just doing the mundane current day responsibilities becomes the norm. And there, there's seasons to this this world, right? We have a deadline-oriented business. So there's no doubt that there should be sprints. But if the expectation is that you're doing 50, 60 hours a week, just on your current job, week after week, month after month, year after year, there's an organizational problem. But for the hungry professional that's getting their stuff done, if I'm working more than 40 hours... Everything that I'm doing over the 40 is on building the future. It's not executing my current job. It's to become better and to earn more later.
1: That's exactly right. And I I think that is, you know, I think you're right. There's times where you have deadlines or approval processes, and those are going to be long weeks. But, you know, in general, you know, you should be able to be managing your your staff time within five hours. And that should enable flexibility for those people who are motivated to then, you know, go do those things that are outside of the mundane. You know, go to that continuing education thing, go sketch something. You know, what are those other
0: opportunities to take on additional responsibility beyond their normal? And, And there's the young professional that's trying to gain responsibility and accountability, like maybe taking responsibility for a design task or a project they don't yet know how to do it's going to take you more time because you're learning while doing. You're not just starting. And- right. If you're the
1: owner of an office, it's sort of like, I don't want to necessarily have the youngest person on staff be responsible for the code review of a complicated building, right? But if they finish all of the work that they were supposed to do within their 40-hour week and they say, hey, can I do a first pass at that code review over the weekend and then bring it back to somebody for a review? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100% you know, one, it's going to save all of us time 2 You're going to learn when I mark it up, you know? So I think
0: that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. It's a great example. You were an entrepreneur in high school, even before high school, it seems, did you always know you wanted to run your own business? Was that a goal of yours? I think I,
1: you know, <laughs> I don't know, something about what egocentric architecture world, right? Like, I think we all, want to. we come out of school and we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have my own office. I'm going to design my own house. I'm going to, I think I think that's probably not true for every personality. But for me, I think I'm less motivated in terms of money or growing a business. Adam might have a different answer relative to the growing a business side. But for me, it's always been, but what's the next thing? It's, it's curiosity about just being able to grow mentally and professionally, right? So I think I always did want to end up either in control of an office or in a partnership for an office, Yes. I wanted to work my way to that end. And not everybody does. And some people come out of school and they think they do. And then they get to the project management level and they start to understand what it takes and what the responsibility level is. And they say, yeah, maybe not. And that's fair. You know, <laughs> I don't think it's for everyone. And, and you know, I think originally I started out the profession and I'm like, I would love to at some point, you know, move back to Delaware, maybe Brady Wide Valley someplace, have an office of 10 people focused on boutique design and um, I run that office, I think. Now, I, you know, I'm not necessarily in that kind of office, not that we can't do that kind of work, but I think in, you know, where I'm at now, I don't think I would ever want to be in an office without a partner. Going through a COVID, going through a housing bubble, like... I think it's just it's if you don't have someone else to bounce ideas off of or talk through how you're going to go through it together and how that support structure, I think it's it's a very be a very stressful profession.
0: I'm a huge advocate for for partners. It wouldn't be the same without Jeremiah. And I I honestly think we'll be partners in whatever venture is, is in front of us. Like you said, your decision making, it's like, uh, the sum is greater than just like one plus one doesn't equal two. It's a multiplier. Your decision-making, your confidence going into those decisions, just everything is elevated when you have a, a quality aligned partnership.
1: Yeah. And I think for Adam and I, what's really been beneficial is that we do have, so like I said, we sort of have opposite backgrounds. He has an MBA. He's come from a large commercial world and and is able to focus on those things I I bring a whole other set of market sectors that gives us, I think, a a broader office. And I think I have a much stronger background in terms of planning and design. And, And I think we both respect what the other person is really good at we both understand when to bring in the other person for expertise. And and I think we respect each other's what each of us brings to the table. And at at the same time, the other part of it is you have to be able to check yourselves, right? And so I think both of us are are able to do that. So I think we complement each other very well. And we sort of overlap in the middle and see eye to eye on the big picture stuff.
0: How do you divvy up leadership responsibilities? You've certainly... Highlighted how you complement each other as architects and background, right? That really gives Market Square this broad opportunity to to kind of attack any angle of the market. How do you divvy up leadership responsibilities and the other things that companies and leadership teams have to do to grow?
1: Well, I think I, I already sort of maybe led into that a little bit, but I think you know Adam with his background and, and um, having the MBA is really fantastic from a business side. You know, I don't. I think architects that are trained as architects. Have to probably work really hard to understand the business side on an office of their own, and I think that wasn't a huge leap for us with his background. And you know, I he loves spreadsheets. I mean, you should see some of his Excel sheets. I saw last year when ESPN was doing their annual Diocho thing. One of the, <laughs> one of the things they had was the international like Excel championships. And I'm like, Adam, you got to, you know, you should sign up for this. So, Get in there. And for me, it's like, you know, I can I can hop on, hop into our network and look at the, you know, where we are from an annual, annual budget standpoint or how we're doing for revenue at any time I want. And he's been able to build a level of detail and understanding that, you know, in a really strong way. And then for me, it allows me to focus on design and training of younger staff. And so I oversee generally all of the aesthetic design that comes out of our office. And um, when I say oversee, I really sort of mean it that way. We have a very studio approach to that rather than a, I design everything and hand it off to somebody um, and, and architecture offices range in the spectrum of, of where
0: that is, but that's kind of the way we approach it here. And then it's a great opportunity for your staff. Like we kind of spoke to about from your, your per- personal journey.
1: And then Adam, I think, you know, he oversees a lot of the projects in multifamily and some of those larger scale things where that's his background. It has more senior PMs for projects of that size, because of the nature of the projects I'm working on, which are everything sort of from that down to, you know, like the music hall lounge across the street, I end up with uh, some of those, I'll, I'll call it more boutique design projects like the music hall lounge. I'll end up with younger, younger staff and younger PMs. And so
0: there's a lot more mentorship in terms of, uh, I think, my side of the fence as well. Anybody you leaned on. So the two of you go into starting your first business together. Was there any leader or mentor book, any resources that you really leaned on to help guide you as you launched Market Square, which is on a presumable rocket in seven years?
1: Probably not as much as there should have been. And <laughs> I think part of it really is just because Adam and I's skill sets are, are opposite. I think the other thing too was, you know, we haven't done a ton of marketing. I think most of our projects have come from people we have relationships with. And so part of it is we got too busy to do that too quickly. And and really that had to do with people who had worked with us before who trusted that they were going to be, that we were going to be able to do it with three people. And so we we ended up actually getting really focused really quickly on just managing projects effectively, delivering them yeah. well and Tremendous. making sure we had enough staff to do them. And having said that, I think Adam's answer would be totally different than mine. I mine. I think he probably would have more resources of what you're talking about in terms of books or mentorship on, on business side. You know, for me, my dad, when he left State Highways, ran his own office for a period of time as a consultant. He was definitely a resource that I would bounce ideas off of. There's another, another civil engineer up here, Greg Michalaitis, who is now, you know, he's like, he's a lot like my dad, actually, in that he's retired multiple times, but is still doing work. <laughs> and and same thing, he's, he's owned a business before. He's, I think, mentored people. I think it's just an interest of his to mentor people who are growing their business and kind of doing the same thing he did. So same thing. I think he was somebody we, I would bounce ideas off of. But yeah, there wasn't necessarily one resource in how to, how to go about that. I think it was more just leaning on past relationships. You know, Some of the, the partners that I had in DC, uh, same thing. I think we available for questions.
0: Driving a ton of work off of past client relationships, new client relationships. It seems like building a team and building a pipeline of work was really a gift of yours. You then looked across the country and considered ac- acquiring another firm, and that led to you buying a firm in Austin, which is one of your current locations. Could you walk us through like how that came to be and what led to that? Yes. Decision?
1: So, you know, I think in general, you know, if Adam, when Adam and I started this office, I think we don't necessarily have an interest in in being a you know 140 person architecture firm in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I think we don't want to be that one big office in one location where you don't know half the people in your building. Like we, we want the small studio feel in our offices for a lot of reasons. Adam and I, between the two of us, because I came from, from the mid-Atlantic and he had done a bunch of work for um, people across the country over the years. We had licenses in like 25, or 30 states. And so we were like, well, why don't we leverage that? And so even though most of the work we did initially was within a couple of hours of our Portsmouth office, you know, we had somebody regionally who does bank branding all over the country and we became their architectural partner. You know, we've, we've done senior living in a lot of different places. So, you know, we, we found that that was a value and that regionally we were one of a few offices, I think that had that many licenses. And so it gave us a little bit, you know, so again, back to breadth. We had gotten busy in Texas and we were actually, we were looking for someone who could be more local and manage projects. And maybe we could build a, Office around that, we didn't really find that. So it wasn't that we set out to acquire an office. I think we found an opportunity where there was a you know 70 year old architecture in Texas who had a 40 year portfolio whose office was very similar to ours in philosophy, who didn't want to manage a growing office again. And so it worked out really well to allow him to sort of transition out of that. And for us, it gave us, you know, a really strong, I think, regional history. Especially, and, and part of it is it's not even like the portfolio, it's understanding what the approval process is like in each little town and all of those things. So, so that worked out. And I think for Adam and I, it's we didn't necessarily plan any timeframe around growth or any metrics around growth. But when opportunities become available,
0: I think we evaluate. Well said. You mentioned earlier how you weren't really driven to, to say, build this massive organization. You don't have a metric for growth, but you're naturally curious and driven to. It's like this continuous learning and continuous improvement. And I think when that's like at the center of your core and in your intent, and that's what's fulfilling, that's a really hard person to compete with because they're just involved and interested in the journey, not the outcome. And it's like, what's the saying? It's like the person who loves walking is going to outlast the person that's just walking to get to a destination.
1: Yeah, and I think... Adam probably again would have a different answer. I think Adam is interested in building a business, but again, we don't have any. We don't necessarily have any set targets around what that is or what the time frame is. I think as relationships grow and as we get good work, we want to be able to take on that work and perform it. Well. And and for for both of us, I think it's a constant evaluation of all right. Well, what's the what's the next opportunity? You know what what do we need to do to put structure in place in order to allow that to succeed? Right. So and I think. You know, we'll never grow just to grow. We don't have any targets. It's really about where do we have opportunities for work and how do we best support
0: when I think of growth, you mentioned like keeping the studio feel and in at HO we are growing nationally as well and we have a similar growth strategy and, and one of the One of the attractions to opening up other offices or growing through acquisition in other cities is it allows you to expand your target market while staying specific to the people that you provide the most value to. But you expand your reach because you're in a different geographic location. It's like if there's 10, these numbers aren't relevant, but if there's only 10 clients in Boston... You don't want to build a firm that needs 20 clients to grow to actually sustain growth if you're just located in Boston. But if there's 10 here, 10 in Miami, 10 in Denver, you can open up these studios and hit your avatar. So your growth opportunity and total addressable market is just opened up geographically.
1: Well, I mean, we've had clients where they'll be working in one area and they'll say, hey, we have this opportunity over in this other place. Would you guys go there? Right. And it's not like I'm going to go open an office for one project necessarily, but you know, if you're able to build off of that, and then you get other referral projects from that client, I mean, there are, you know, I think for us, it's been much more organic in terms of where those relationships are.
0: Hundred percent, yeah. And fortunately, I think the beauty of architecture and engineering is we truly can service a project from anywhere. I think the economics—you have to get to a project of a certain scale for it to make sense to hire an, en- an engineer architect across the country. But well, also- and don't
1: get me wrong, like I wouldn't do a hospital project without having it staffed probably locally, but, <laughs> but, you know, like a bank fit out, it's, if you have a good PM, it's not that, it's not that hard.
0: Uh, you can figure it out. Any lessons learned or advice for fellow entrepreneurs and business owners considering growth through acquisition? I think you've got to really
1: know why you're doing it. You know, if it's growth for acquisition, I, th- I think to me, you know, people might look at it differently. I think some people just want, Hey, we have a new project in a place. We need a certain amount of bodies to support that. The acquisition is about people. Yeah, I don't know. Is it about diversity or revenue? I think for, for us, if we were going to acquire a place, I think it has to be something that would fit generally within our office philosophy and, and also in terms of the type of work that they did. Again, we wouldn't just acquire to acquire. I think there are, there are companies that do that. I mean, there are other companies that have a totally different philosophy and they do have growth targets and it's more about metrics or revenue. I think you got to know what the reason is why you're going somewhere. You got to really believe in in that move, and then how do you support it? I think that you know anybody who's going to a different place, it's really how do you support that towards success, and then I think
0: success is going to be measured by whatever those initial goals are. It's great advice. Architecture, interiors, planning. When when I go to Market Square's website, that's a, a statement right on the front. And I, I love how succinct and clear that is. Could you talk about the three facets of your business, architecture, interiors, and planning, and how they kind of coexist or how they integrate?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, architecture, I think, is pretty straightforward. And we've talked about what market sectors. Interiors is something that has developed over time. And so, we have partnered with outside interior offices on projects over the years. And at the same time, we do have interior staff in house. And that sector of our office has grown a lot over time through different experience. So, now, you know, we do take on interiors only projects. We're doing a couple, we're doing a corporate headquarters fit up for our office space right now, two of them actually in New Hampshire and a lot of square feet. So, you know, that's grown, grown over time. And again, I think it's been where we have found opportunities and also where we have found the appropriate staff um, that have come along to support those opportunities. So the interiors sector of our office, they both support our architectural projects whether it's multifamily housing or, or single-family residential, whatever that is, they also have their own projects, um, commercial fit-ups and those kinds of things.
0: It is a separate team though, right? They're like there's interior design team and an architecture team, but they might collaborate on a single project.
1: Yes, correct. And I think it really just depends on what the nature of the project is. Is there an architectural component? Is there not? Is the architecture the driver? Is the interior part the driver, right? That, that changes depending on your project. Master planning seems like a unique still, right? Planning is a little different. I, you know, I think architecture offices in general, there's a lot of architecture offices out there. Some of them have interiors departments. Some of them have interiors departments that do their own work. Some of them only have interior departments that support the architectural team. And then there's even less probably that have the plan. So a lot of that goes to myself. I have a background on planning. The Patrick Weber, who, who is the head of our St. Louis office and does work in Nashville, has a planning background. So we have done over the years when opportunities have come up, we've done master planning for some campuses. We've done master planning for larger scale commercial developments that have multiple buildings. And I think that even on individual building projects, it really helps us to, you know, go through that approvals process with a civil engineer. And again, it's really, it's understanding what questions to ask and it's understanding what those big picture project goals are. When you're looking at a planning project, it's really at a 20,000 foot view. And so I think, you know, again, it's sort of, that's not a driver for our office, I love that kind of work. I personally have a very strong interest in that. So does Patrick. It has at times, I think, really helped us to be valuable where, you know, maybe we started on a, you know, like one-off building project for a campus, but it, it, it has enabled us to help them, you know, optimize a parcel based on a larger 20,000 foot view, you know, view of their campus. So I think that's been true. We did some work at Berwick Academy. We've done some work for Phillips Exeter. And even those were those were kind of micro-projects we were able to inform those projects and how they were laid out relative to a civil drawing to optimize the site. And then there are other times where the planning has been the driver and then individual buildings have come out of that. But I think it really comes
0: out of an interest and sort of expertise that we just happen to have. I'd like the idea of asking questions to understand what exactly is the goal. Does your team and I'm sure market sector, like whether you're working for a university, uh, a city or a downtown area or a private developer, how much do the economics come into play when you're talking about master planning? Do you have to have a good understanding of development economics to do it well?
1: I think to be really successful in architecture in general, I think it's really helpful to be. You always have to have that thought process in the back of your mind. I'm sure you understand this as an engineer too, right? It's you know the decision of whether to use a wood joist or I-beam. A lot of times, on a, on a commercial project, is going to come down to cost. If one's twice as much as the other, we might not do it. It also depends, you know, is it a two-year hold and then it's going to get sold? Or is it a 50-year hold? You know, we, we did projects. I, once upon a time, I did a bunch of projects for Westinghouse. Westinghouse has permanent facilities and Westinghouse has leased facilities. And the answer for the permanent facilities was always go over budget and spend the money on the thing that's going to last for 100 years because you're still going to be here. And the answer for the leased facility was you're not going to be here 18 months. Like use the tissue paper. So, you know, I think ask questions. If you want, if you want your projects to get built, you've got to have the thought process in the back of your mind about what's going to make this economically viable for whatever pro forma you're working in. And don't get me wrong; I tell people all the time, like they say, "What kind of? What's your perfect client?" No, not a client at all. I would like a patron, please. You know, here's ten million dollars. Go design me a library the way you think it should be designed. Perfect. You know, I don't usually get a lot of that. Usually, there's a you know cost and budget are a part of any project, and so you have to understand how to make it work. Could you describe your ideal client for me? What do you look for
0: in a client and a partner?
1: It's not a client at all. It's a patron. I mean, that's my ideal. And it's kind of funny. I mean, I think we we have on occasion had a, had folks like that. We did a restaurant in Manchester. You know, it was interesting. They had they already had a fixed budget because they had already hired a builder, which was interesting coming in from that time <laughs> where we hadn't started design yet. But they also had an existing building. And so they had a limited budget in an existing building. And they sort of said, here's our goals. But they were focused, they were really focused on the aesthetic goals of the building. And so they basically told us, look, guys, we just want you to go be artists. And that was very early on in our history. And and we I had a lot of fun on that. We developed three completely different concepts. And what we ended up selecting was a concept where we actually subtracted from the building. It was a true masonry building, and so we were able to actually peel away the original block veneer and create sort of two different boxes. And it was a very modern design, but, it you know, demo was easy as far as budget, right? And so we were able to get through goals, but that was a lot of fun. It was really you get a chance to be an artist. I think in general, you know, what I find the most rewarding projects to be are when you're really valued by a client. Where you know they say here's here's our project goals, but then also it's sort of we're going to value your insight and recommendations because there are people who don't listen to do us at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> they want to do, it. and yeah. but there are other people that really you know they figure, hey, we've we've hired these guys for a reason. Let's let's listen to their input. Those clients almost always end up happier long term. They almost always get more of their project goals achieved. But those are the most rewarding projects. Projects that are fun for me are the ones that either have a high focus on design. Some of the single family residential projects we worked on, they are often the hardest from navigating personal relationship side, client meeting. Private
0: single family design seems like one of the hardest things in the world because your client is uneducated and super emotionally invested in the outcome of the project.
1: Some, some of them are more educated than you think or some of them have been through process before, but they're definitely more emotionally invested. And, and at the same time, for the clients that really value our input, they can be by far the most rewarding projects because that relationship is really important. And at the end, you know, if you've achieved their goals, they're often the most satisfied. But also, I think any project with complexity, whether it's. Figure out how to do this wall section. Figure out how to make this weird, weird thing look good. This weird industrial thing look good, right? You know, even helping people through approval processes. As much as I don't like going to those meetings, there's a lot of, I think, value in that. So I think, I think what I would say is the the best clients, for my ideal clients, they're the ones who value your service and listen. And and valuing your service, it's like we don't argue with those clients about payment. You know, it's it's people who truly understand the professional service that, that they're getting and value.
0: Well said. What can we expect from Market Square over the next five years?
1: I have no idea. I have to buy a good crystal ball for that. You know, I think for us it's it's we are going to be continue to be focused on, you know, working in all these market sectors and I think supporting those project relationships correctly for successful project outcomes. And I think, you know, we will grow where it makes sense to support project relationships. And so we don't have a target in mind of, hey, we want to have 10 offices by when, you know, there's nothing like that. I think it's really just continue to be who we are and and when opportunities
0: come around, evaluate them. When I think of growth and what I'm hearing you say is when you serve clients so well that they demand more of your services and when you serve them so well that they refer you to other clients and that your team is growing at a rate where they're capable of more like that's the optimal growth. Your team's capable of more and your clients are so happy they demand more. That's the type of growth that you want in a business. That's the idea. So you can hit it. <laughs> it's the great white elk that we're all chasing, right? And something I asked in closing of all of our podcasts are your favorite book or podcast that you'd recommend to the, to the group. So I'm not a huge
1: podcast person. I probably should be, where like I have kids, and I feel like that's an easy thing to listen to in the background. But I'm not. I, in general, I usually have three things on my you know nightstand. I usually have like a a book for fun when I come home from the planning board and I just need to turn my brain off. Uh, I usually have something that's current or topical and then I usually have something that's professional. It might be a magazine article I'm interested in, might be a topic that I want to know more about or it might be something. like I have an interest in urban planning and I, I lived in Italy for you know a bit to study and so I might read about Rome or whatever. I think one of the books that I read in grad school that I really thought was valuable was Kevin Lynch Image of the City. If you're interested in planning, that's a great sort of overview of, of planning thought process at a high level. Architecture is Space by Bruno Zavi is good. Complexity and Contradiction by Bob Venturi. I, you know, I thought that was really, I didn't agree with everything in it, but it was very thought provoking. Those three books in terms
0: of design, the creation of space and urban planning, I think are really, really valuable from an architectural side. Appreciate those recommendations, Rob. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. We we value Market Square as a partner and think your team does an exceptional job at driving expectations and putting together a really good quality set of design drawings. So we appreciate you and thanks again for joining us on Design Development. We really appreciate your comments and really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me up. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Design Development. Real quick before you leave, our goal is to help as many people as possible. We're a growing community and you're a big part of it. So just click that send button, send this episode to a friend, let them get those same insights that you got today. We appreciate you. See you next time.